Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jay Wexler, Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. We will discuss his new book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life, which is published by, the, by Stanford University Press on their trade imprint, Redwood Press. So welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks so much. I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be here to talk to you about this book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed reading it. There are so many things to like about it, including that it's incredibly timely because this is a question that once again is before the Supreme Court. Like as we speak, a lot of people were waiting on tender hooks for the Supreme Court to be speaking about the questions that you're addressing today. So as a way of framing the timeliness of the questions that you're raising, could you say a little bit of something about sort of What's before the Supreme Court now and how that reflects sort of the history of the way that the Supreme Court has been thinking about the kind of question of separation of church and uh, state, especially in public spaces? Sure. So the case is about a 40-foot high cross on public property in Maryland, and it was challenged by the American Humanist Association uh, for violating the, the separation of church and state, for violating the First Amendment's Establishment Clause on the grounds that it sends a, a message that the government is endorsing Christianity, which to me, uh, as an atheist, sort of atheist, sort of Jew, um, I definitely think is true. Uh, but little, little, uh, however, um, <laughs> you, know, you never know what the Supreme Court's going to do, do with these cases. The Supreme Court has said a bunch of times that the government can't endorse religion. It can't send a message that one religion is favored over another religion or that religion is favored over non-religion generally. But yet somehow it still ends up uh, often upholding monuments or displays that I think are clearly endorsements of religion. For example, a Ten Commandments monument on Texas Capitol grounds and a, uh, a, 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 a baby crush display in Rhode Island. The the court comes up with all these kinds of reasons why what clearly looks like a religious symbol may not be, in fact, a religious symbol. And so that's what's going on in this case. The argument in favor of the cross being okay is that it's a World War I monument. And and that crosses, particularly with respect to World War I uh, soldiers, took on this, has have, have taken on this separate meaning apart from their religious uh, meanings, and they just sort of celebrate or uh, the war dead. So it's not really a cross so much, not really a Christian symbol, the argument is. It's a, it's a symbol of um, honoring the veterans. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, you know, uh, as a Jew, I, I just, I, I, I can't get, I can't understand that argument at all. Um, I went to the oral argument, in fact, for this case, and I watched for 70 minutes as this, the Supreme Court struggled over this question of whether a cross is a religious symbol. And it's just mind-blowing to me. Uh, it, I went there as a masochist. I knew what was going to happen, and, it, and exactly what happened, uh, exactly what I thought was going to happen ended up happening. So I think this case is going to come out in favor of the cross being okay, uh, and, and just waiting to see exactly why the court thinks that's the case. So it's my impression that a lot of people think there's at least the potential that this this case before the court now might 
be an opportunity, <laughs> I yeah. guess is one way of putting it, for the court to sort of change the way it frames its establishment clause jurisprudence. I wonder if you could just kind of in a nutshell, kind of in recent history, how has the court kind of described the way it decides these kinds of establishment clause cases about uh, religiously inflected monuments in public spaces? And what are people concerned that the court might do to change the way it kind of currently frames those questions? Right. So it's it's hard to describe anything the Supreme Court does about religion uh, quickly and and concisely, um, but I'll, I'll give it a try. So, the, the 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 court has an overall test that it uses for all kinds of establishment clause cases. It's called the Lemon Test, and it basically asks uh, if the government has a secular purpose in whatever it's doing, and whether it's uh, the the primary effect of the action is secular or religious. And if there's a, either a purpose or a, an effect that's primarily religious, it's unconstitutional. And then when it comes to uh, specific kind of areas of disputes within the kind of world of separation of church and state, it applies that test somewhat differently. So there's kind of one approach for cases involving government aid to religion, another approach for government-sponsored prayer. And then for symbols and displays, what the court says is that basically if, if, the, if the government is sending a message of endorsement of a religion or of religion generally, then it has engage in a uh, an action that has the primary effect of promoting religion and therefore the action is unconstitutional now what's going to what what the people are interested in what in, in doctrinally in this case is whether the supreme court will get rid of the endorsement test approach to evaluating religious symbols in the public square and replace it with something else now, what that something else is, nobody knows. At the oral argument, there was a big conversation about whether uh, the, the court might in, might adopt a test of coercion slash proselytization. In other words, a symbol or display on government property is okay unless it either coerces viewers into believing the religion or it proselytizes for the religion. The, the justices, even the conservative justices who probably don't like the endorsement test very much, didn't really get behind that view either because they thought it was kind of as malleable and mushy as the endorsement test itself. And so it's really unclear what the court, whether the court's going to replace the, the existing endorsement test with something else. And if so, what else? And then how it would analyze the test under whatever the other test it might, I mean, how it would analyze the case under whatever other test it might adopt. So there's a lot of open questions here. I think it's pretty clear that they will uphold the cross, but there are a lot of questions about exactly how they'll do it. Mm-hmm. So from your book and my understanding more generally, I mean, it seems to me like you could kind of characterize the different sort of normative positions on this question as being like extremely per- permissive in the sense that government, uh, re- that re- religious speech is, go- government religious speech is prohibited only if people are coerced versus extremely restrictive, like basically no government speech about re- religion in public spaces ought to be permitted. And then a kind of intermediate or maybe even just different approach, which you seem to talk about in your book that, you know, we should think about pluralism and additional religious voices rather than taking these kind of one or the other extreme positions. But you, you also seem sympathetic to the no religious speech 
argument to some extent. How do you see the relationship between those two positions, the no religious speech versus pluralistic religious speech? Uh, well, I, I think that they can, they coexist, they coexist uh, perfectly well. And the, the key to understanding that is the distinction between government speech, uh, where the government is speaking for itself by putting up a monument on its property. In which case, I think the, the, the test should be very restrictive because I don't think the government should be uh, be putting up religious displays or symbols of any kind on the property, on its property, versus the government opening up a public, what we call a public forum for private speech in which it sets aside a piece of government property and allows private individuals to express themselves however they want on government property. To me, that's entirely different. So if the government or uh, had, in this case, opened up its public property to religious symbols honoring veterans and the, the American Legion wanted to put up a cross, that would be fine. But it would also be okay for a Hindu organization to come in and put a Hindu monument to veterans up, or an atheist group could do so, or a Wiccan group, or pertinent to my uh, dis- discussion in the book, a Satanist group could also put up a veteran mm-hmm. monument. And what we would have then is a, you know, a piece of property, which is, not, which is government owned, but it's opened up to a bunch of different religious and non-religious groups to put up whatever they think is appropriate to honor veterans. And then you've got religious pluralism, and the government simply facilitating that. It is not itself um, you know, making any particular statement about which religion is better or whether religion is better than non-religion. And I think that's the way that these, this whole situation ought to be handled. Mm-hmm. So it, it, in your book, you, you, you talk about sort of some of the, the concerns you have about governments engaging in religiously inflected speech. And it seems like a big part of it is that there's a tendency when that happens, or almost a uniform tendency, for governments to endorse some form of Christian belief sect and resist the addition or inclusion of non-Christian belief sets. Is, is that a fair assessment? Could, could you dr- describe a situation where that's happened and maybe why you think that's a problem? So I think that's exactly right. All, all of these cases are about challenges to Christian uh, monuments, displays uh, on public property. There, there, there are you know, one or two cases you can find out there where the government is a, cha- a challenge for endorsing some minority religion, but it's, it's 99.99%. Christianity. And so that, that is what happens. Uh, the, it, if the government's going to have a religious symbol on its property, it's always Christian. It's always the majority religion. And there, so there's a case, for example, that I described in the book uh, in the first chapter, where a small, quirky religious group called the Summum in Salt Lake City, the Summum, S-U-M-M-U-M, they have some uh, very interesting beliefs. And one of those beliefs is that God, before he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, actually gave Moses this thing called the Seven Aphorisms, but Moses saw the sort of in um, the in immaturity of his people, and he didn't think they were ready for the seven aphorisms. So he smashed the seven aphorisms, went back and got the Ten Commandments and gave them to the people. But these seven aphorisms were later given uh, by these uh, great beings to this guy who started this religion in, in Utah. And so this religion believes in these seven aphorisms. And they wanted to put up a monument of the seven, their seven aphorisms in a public park next to where the government had already put up a monument to the Ten Commandments. And the park said, no, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. It has, this is not, has nothing to do with 
the history of our city or our nation or our laws or anything like that. And so what we ended up having is a park with a, with a, a monument to the Ten Commandments, but no monument to the seven aphorisms. And I think that's a shame. I think it would be much better if the government were to say, here's the, this part of the park, you can put up your religious symbols, uh, whatever they might be. And if that means that you get a Ten Commandments monument and a seven aphorisms, aphorisms monument and a satanic Baphomet goat monument, all the better. But the way it's done now, basically, if there's a symbol on public property, it's Christian. And I think that's unfair to religious minorities and people who don't believe in religion at all. Yeah. And I, I thought the Summum example was fascinating, not only because they're such an unusual and interesting group. They give open classes on Wednesday nights in Salt Lake City, and you can go inside their pyramid that they have, which yeah. opens up like a DeLorean. It's amazing inside. I, yeah. I recommend it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, but you know, it's not only that they're so intrinsically interesting, but you really highlight how the case that they brought posed such an interesting sort of doctrinal question, right? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, many other groups have been at least moderately successful in challenging Ten Commandments monuments, but there was a doctrinal reason why some of them couldn't win on the kind of claim that they wanted to make. Maybe you can explain to people what what was that? I mean, what what was the sort of formal weakness right. of so, the Summum argument? Right. So the Summum were not challenging the placement of the Ten Commandments. Uh, they thought the Ten Commandments in the public park was totally fine. Uh, they liked the Ten Commandments. After all, it's the completion of uh, the seven aphorisms. But what they wanted was for the government to put up their seven aphorisms next to the Ten Commandments. Now, the problem is that that if, when the government is putting up its own monuments or displays, it is the government speaking for itself. And the Supreme Court held unanimously, and I think correctly, that the government, you can't force the government to put up uh, a monument where it, whereby it, the government itself will be saying what you want it to say. The government has to be able to say what it wants to say. So, for example... If the Summum had won this case, uh, you know, it might have meant that if, that if a government, you know, had somewhere had put up a, a display to liberty and justice, that somebody else would come up, uh, around and say, hey, government, you also have to put up our monument to injustice and inequality. And we wouldn't want that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the, the tricky and, and, and difficult part of this whole Summum situation, which I try to lay out in the book, I think it's probably be more clear in the book than what I'm saying now. But in any event... What's what's unfortunate about this whole Ten Commandments situation is that the, the Supreme Court in 2005 said it was okay for the government to put up its own Ten Commandments monument. In other words, it's it's not an endorsement of religion for the government to basically say and express itself through this Ten Commandments monument, even though to anybody who doesn't believe in the Ten Commandments, it's clearly government endorsement of a particular religious belief. So the problem in the Sulem situation was not really with the Sulem decision itself, but rather this earlier case called Van Orden versus Perry, which upheld the government's right to have a Ten Commandments monument on its property as long as it's been there for a really long time and it's surrounded by some other monuments and a few other things obtained. Um, so that's a complicated way of saying the Sulem should have lost but there shouldn't be any Ten Commandments monument on the public property uh, sponsored by the government in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and mean, the weird thing about the outcome of the case to me is that it seems to kind of implicitly suggest that the government is endorsing religious speech because specifically because it doesn't want to include, you know, 
alterations or emendations of the particular kind of speech it's making. I mean, it's it's hard to see how else you would understand that refusal to include something else other than an endorsement of this is the kind of speech we want to make and that's the kind of speech we don't. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the fiction uh, that the court engages in is that the Ten Commandments is not religious speech at all, but that it is historical speech somehow, that it is when the government puts up a Ten Commandments monument on, the, on its property, it's basically acknowledging, I always, when I'm teaching this to my class and I try to make this point, I always sort of fail because it's such a hard, I don't, I can't like even express this uh, view because it's so bananas to me. But the idea is that the Ten Commandments is simply acknowledging or celebrating somehow United States history. Um, and so if, if you, if you, believe that fiction, then it, I guess it would also make sense to reject the seven aphorisms because the seven aphorisms have nothing to do with U.S. history or the history of the, the, the locality uh, that's in question, which is what this public, what this little town said, the town said, well, the Ten Commandments are related to the history of Pleasant Grove, Utah, but the seven aphorisms it aren't. Um, neither of them are related to the history of, of the uh, uh, or, or if, uh, of the town, or if they're related it's only you know one percent of the meaning of the ten commandments is related to the history and the other 99 percent is clearly about religion so that i mean like that's the fiction that the court comes up with um i don't think there are many people who are persuaded by that i don't know mm-hmm. i guess there are i guess there must be but <laughs> nobody yeah know. yeah yeah well i mean it, it seems like practically speaking like so many other things like it's kind of people looking to what they see as like a reasonable compromise outcome and asking sort of like, how far do we want to go with this? And then the sort of the, the rationale or the kind of the doctrinal justification becomes kind of a muzzle muddle in the meantime. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, And, you know, I understand why judges would be concerned about, you know, the idea of, the bulldozers coming in the middle of the night and taking down Ten Commandments monuments and cross monuments, all um, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why these arguments, both the Ten Commandments case and this the case about the cross that's that was argued in February, are, are uh, a lot of it is are about um, how many of these things are out there. Like there was a good part of the oral argument in this cross case in which the different parties were arguing that they're. You know, once the government was saying, oh, there are thousands of cross monuments that are going to have to be taken down if you if you strike down this cross. And the other side, the challengers are saying, actually, if you look at it, you know, more carefully, you realize that there are only six or something like that. You know, and there's and so there's a debate about how many crosses are going to have to be bulldozed um, because that, you know, it's going to play into the, the sort of practical concerns that the justices have. Now, what I always think about that is that no no but no crosses have to come down no ten commandments have to come down all the government has to do is say all right this is no longer um simply government uh property where or the monuments represent our view rather we'll just turn this little area into a public forum for private speech and allow other people to put up their monuments and displays also um there are some tricky parts about in uh um Implementing that, particularly in this cross case, because there's the amount of land is limited and the cross is so big. But generally, I think that's the way that the, that the court should think about it, is that it's not by striking down a government sponsored Ten Commandments or cross. It is not 
basically making an invitation to, to, to bulldozers around the country to start taking these things down. Rather, it's an invitation to the government to allow more mining units to go up. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you could talk about that idea in the context of opening invocations, because it seems like a lot of municipalities have sort of accomplished something analogous in the context of these kind of public opening invocations to government sessions. Yeah, that's right. So the Supreme Court has held that it is totally acceptable for a town board or a city legislature or state legislature to start off a session with a prayer. And the prayer can be as fully sectarian as the person who's giving the prayer wants it to be. It can be, in other words, not just to our almighty God, but to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Uh, and the uh, the idea behind that actually goes, is a historical one. The, the justification is historical in that it, um, the, uh, the, 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 the establishment clause was actually ratified a few days after the House and Senate had hired their chaplains. So and there's a historical argument for that. But in any event, what the court has also said is that if a town or a legislature has an invocation policy, it has to be non-discriminatory. So if other, it, it, it can't just allow Christians to give an invocation. If there's an atheist who has to come in and give an, wants to give an invocation or a Satanist or a Wiccan or a Hindu, well, the government has to allow them to give the invocations as well. So it's sort of like a public forum for private speech only except not in space, but rather in time where the Christian gives the invocation in January, the Wiccan gives it in, in February, maybe another Christian in March, and then the Jew in, in April, Satanist gets May, et cetera, et cetera. And the Supreme Court said that in this 2015 case of town of Greece versus Galilee, or I think it was 15, 15 or 14. And in any event, after the court said that, the, that there can't be any discrimination against uh, when the government's choosing who gets to give the invocation, a lot of minorities started coming forward and saying, hey, we would like to also give invocations. So now there have been hundreds of atheist invocations around the country. There have been Wiccan invocations, Hindu invocations, and even a couple of Satanist invocations. And I like, I think that's a great result. Now, sometimes the the local board and the local population really find uh, a minority invocation, particularly a Satanist one, to be distasteful. And the book is recounts a lot of examples of, for example, town boards turning their backs or leaving the room rather than listen to an atheist or a Wiccan give the, a two-minute invocation. Uh, and some towns, uh, like the city of Phoenix, for example, shut down their invocation for, uh, policy altogether rather than let two Satanists come up and give a Satanist invocation for two minutes, you know, out of an entire year. But in many cases, it has worked quite well. And you have town boards that are, in fact, uh, opened by a diverse set of invocations. If you look at the the practice over the course of a year or two, it looks very pluralistic. And I think that is a great story. Mm-hmm. Well, it, from your book, it seemed like different towns took different approaches. So like some of them, you know, maybe a little grudgingly, but ultimately opened up 
the opportunity to make the invocation to a broad range of people, basically whoever wanted to, you know, whoever, whoever applied and was qualified to do it in, in the first place. And others have gone with just eliminating the invocation and like adopting like a moment of silence or something like that. I wonder if you have thoughts about like the relative preferability of those two approaches. I mean, pluralistic speech versus effectively no religious speech, although it seems like the moment of silence still seems kind of communicative in context, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, that's a hard question. The moment of silence, is that religious or not? But if we put that aside and just and ask, you know, is it better to have no invocation versus a, uh, a practice of pluralistic invocations? That's a hard question. I mean, I think Ultimately, I would prefer a world in which there were no religious invocations before government meetings whatsoever. Um, but that's something that the Supreme Court is not going, you know, the Supreme Court held, that's not right. We're going to allow invocations. And in fact, a lot of the book is about how the sort of battle for separation of church and state, the battle for a secular public square is really over, at least for a generation, given the new justices that we have. And so the pluralism is kind of a second best. And, 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 and my contribution, I think, is to say it's not just a, you know, a really unfortunate second best. It's a, not a bad second best. It's a pretty good second best. It has some real advantages. Um, and so while I wish there was a sec- completely secular public square, I think that having a pluralistic public square is a pretty good Result, um, certainly, certainly much better than an entirely Christian public square. And that's sort of the, the focus of what my book is about, is why, mm-hmm. why it's better to have a pluralistic public square than a Christian public square, given that the secular public square seems to be out of the question. Right. So a lot of your book focuses on the Satanic Temple and their efforts to engage in this conversation. So I wonder if you could briefly talk about who they are, sort of what they stand for, and how they have collectively tried to intervene in this conversation about how we should think about religious pluralism in public spaces. Okay, so the Satanic Temple was founded in 2012. By like a couple of people, five or six people, it's it's grown enormously. It, one estimate is that it has a hundred thousand, hundred thousand members at the moment, um, or followers. The they, these people are not like the Satanist of your imagination. If you or you're not your grandma's Satanist, is what I like to say. They they don't they don't uh, kill cats or eat babies. And in fact, no Satanist ever existed that did that. Or or if if one or two did, they certainly wasn't a big uh, you know, religious group that did that. That's sort of a, a, a figment of this, um, a, what's, what is known as the satanic panic of the 70s and 80s, in which the media basically made up this idea that there were Satanists everywhere, killing children, et cetera, and drinking blood. The satanic temple um, uh, venerates the symbol of Satan as sort of uh, representing a rebellion against oppressive authority. That's uh, their sort of theology, and they celebrate that with ritual. They celebrate that with art. They celebrate that um, um, with with talks and readings and all sorts of other things. And uh, they have they're a very politically leftist group. They have seven tenets, which you can find online, and they're things like justice, equality, and bodily integrity, and things that most liberals, uh, political liberals, would agree with. 
And they do a lot of different things in the world. Um, they push for uh, very liberal kind of uh, policies like the end to corporal punishment for children. They challenge abortion restrictions, et cetera. Their main work that people have heard of and that I talk about in the book is uh, related to the separation of church and state and it kind of exactly what, I, what, I, what we've been talking about so far, which is to say if the government is supporting Christianity in some way, either by having Christians give invocations or by putting up a Christian monument, on public property, the Satanic Temple will try to be there to ask the government to also allow Satan into the public square. So to put up a Satanic monument next to the Ten Commandments monument, to let a Satanist give an invocation the week or month after the Christian gives an invocation. And so they, they, they're they basically pointing out that uh, religious pluralism requires a kind of a radical-looking public square, one which has Christianity in it, but also has almost its opposite, Satanism. And it's kind of a big development because Satanism has a real, um, it has a real effect on people in a way that atheism does not. Um, you know, it's, a lot of people would object to atheists, and of course do, but a satanic, occult, goat-headed, you know, bronze figure is much more offensive to many people than, say, an atheist bench. And there's an atheist bench in, a, in public property in Florida there's yet to be a satanic monument uh, in any place in public uh, on public land, and that's because Satan is, in fact, so frightening. And that's what gives the satanic temple its real power in this space, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, I mean, what they do is often very amusing, and uh, I think many of their arguments are doctrinally quite compelling. There does seem to be a certain element of trolling going on in their adoption of the term Satanism. And, and I kind of, kind of wonder, like, to what extent do you think the Satanism element of their program is sort of uh, sincere mm-hmm. as opposed to chosen, at least in part, because of the reaction it's likely to provoke in the people who are pushing the government to make Christian and inflected religious speech in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, I think my view is that the Satanism is real. I think it it, it is not just a, a costume. It is, it is real. You know, Satanism uh, as a kind of a philosophy slash religion uh, goes back to the, the, the 17th century and some of the romantic poets who first adopted Satan and sort of rehabilitated this character of Satan uh, as, a, as this kind of uh, rebel, the eternal rebel. And, and it comes with all of this iconography, it comes with art, it comes with ritual. And I think that the pe- people in the Satanic Temple really uh, believe it. I mean, really, it really is important to their identity. It's not just chosen as a lark. Now, it's also important to, to recognize that there are a lot of people in the Satanic Temple, and not all of them, you know, take the faith in the same way. Not all of them are serious about the theology. Some of them certainly have joined because they think it's fun and they want to troll the government. But, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of, of, you know, being a Satanist means that you are partaking in rituals with a particular kind of uh, atmosphere. It means that you are identifying as somebody who is, who is rebellious. It means you are going to get death threats, perhaps. It's, 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 it's not something to be done lightly. And I think that the people who've done it, who really made it part of their lives, I mean, I think it would be 
you know, insane for them to have done it just for a joke. Um, and I don't think that's what they've done. And the people I know who identify as Satanists, it's important to them. And, you know, they're not just atheists. They are people who have a, have a real uh, investment in this whole set of symbols and meanings, which is really what religion, I think, is uh, more than anything else. So I, I think they're real for the most mm. part. Mm-hmm. So, so Jay, maybe in in closing, and and as in closing your book, maybe you could reflect once again, sort of on what you see the benefits of thinking about public religious speech more pluralistically, and sort of emphasizing openness and inclusion mm-hmm. in religious speech in public spaces could be uh, from kind of a political and social standpoint. In other words, why is this a good idea? Yeah. So um, I think there are a number of advantages to having this kind of religious pluralism in the public square. I think it makes public life much more interesting, for one thing. Uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm at, I mean, thinking about just a, a, a public body who starts uh, each month's invocation off, uh, each month's meeting off with a different invocation from a different group, different religious perspective. That to me is so much more interesting than uh, a purely, you know, Christian invocation practice. It's more interesting than a secular, to entirely secular pra- uh, practice, which doesn't have invocations also. And so there, it, there's this kind of uh, excitement, energy, energy um, uh, about having lots of different religious voices and non-religious voices in the public square. The, 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 the term I use in the book is religious cacophony. And, um, you know, it's messy and I understand the problems with it, but I do think it's exciting. I think it's invigorating. I also think it's it's uh, empowering for religious minorities. So, uh, you know, one thing you can do in a pluralist public square is you can put yourself forward as a as a believer in X or Y or a believer in nothing, and you can talk about that. You can you you can celebrate that in public. And I think that for many people, not everybody, but for for many people, that's going to be experienced as empowering. And certainly for many of the people I talk to in the book. Um, and I also think it's, it, it could lead to better educational, better understanding of religion and its, and its alternative. So it's a more educational kind of public square. Uh, I think there is something about religion in the public square that's kind of educative, that, you, that the Americans are very notoriously uneducated about religion, um, partially because our public schools don't teach about religion much. And so having religion in the public square... Uh, you know, introduces people to religious beliefs uh, that they may not know anything about. You might have to sit through a two-minute invocation about uh, what it means to be a pagan. That might be your, uh, you know, the a person who's sitting there in the audience's only introduction to paganism in their entire life. And so I think that is uh, something that ought to be uh, noted, the education. And, and I have this kind of hope, it might be Pollyannish, I don't know, uh, that, that, that over time, uh, anyways, that kind of better educated population when it comes to religion would lead to more mutual respect and understanding and tolerance and maybe even social peace when it comes to religion. I can't prove that. Uh, it's certainly plausible that the, that the opposite could occur. It's kind of something I have uh, faith in, in a way, which makes me <laughs> kind of uh, ironic, maybe. Uh, but but that's, that's what I think. And uh, so that's why I think trying this pluralistic public square is a worthwhile experiment. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Jay, and congratulations on your excellent new book. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on the podcast. It's uh, been terrific talking with you.
is real Working in spirit You can see him and hear him In this world every day Satan is real Working with power He can tempt you and lead you astray I attended service at a little church in the country not long ago a prayer was led by an old country preacher who then raised his hands as everyone stood and sang, My God is real. A warm breeze through the open windows brought in the smell of new mown hay in a nearby field, and the singing of birds could be heard in the moment of silence as the preacher opened his Bible to read. And then a little old man stood up, bent with age, his hair thin and white, and said, Preacher, tell them that Satan is real too. You can hear him in songs that give praise to idols and sinful things of this world. You can see him in the destruction of homes torn apart. I know that Satan is real, for once I had a happy home. I was loved and respected by my family. I was looked upon as a leader in my community. And then... Satan came into my life. I grew selfish and unneighborly. My friends turned against me, and finally my home was broken apart. My children took their paths into a world of sin. Yes, preacher, it's sweet to know that God is real and to know that in him all things are possible. And we know that heaven is a real place where joys shall never end. But sinner friend, if you're here today, Satan is real too. And hell is a real place, a place of everlasting punishment. Satan is real, working in spirit. You can see him and hear him in this world. Brothers, Satan is real. 